This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. Find out more information at rivercitysegs.com. River City Segs is on Facebook, it's on Instagram, and it's on Twitter at 804segs, 804segs. And if you got family coming in, you're just looking for, uh, you know, a a non-turkey-related event to do during Thanksgiving, uh, River City Segs is is here for you. It's always a great, great day to experience Richmond, and especially on a Segway. So come on out and always practice safe Segs. History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. My name is Jeff Major. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you feel great. Hope you're just having a really amazing day. I have Dale, Dale Bromfield on the show. He is an author, a literary and digital archaeologist. He's also a, which is an incredible title, by the way, literary and digital archaeologist. Uh, he's also a second year grad student at VCU studying fiction. This is actually his sixth book that we'll talk about, uh, Richmond Independent Press, A History of the Underground Zine Scene. It's very well written, action-packed. The, you know, the, the fiction style actually rubs off, um, and it's very well researched as well, because um, I don't want to, I don't think I'm like revealing any secrets here, but history books on occasion can be slightly dry, on occasion. Not all the time, on occasion. Um, but this is very well written. You know, like I said, action-packed. You know, go buy it. It's a great read. Uh, we do talk a bit in general about, you know, what does it even mean to to be independent press? Um, you know, there's some really, really interesting characters in Richmond's past that we talk about. Um, my favorite, I had actually heard rumors of this fellow before, and he somewhat confirms a little bit some of, some of the stories I've heard about this guy, Lester, who apparently lived on a houseboat on the canal, uh, on the... On the Kanawha Canal, by I, I, from what I understand, near um, near Great Shiplocks Park, and um, threw a cow into the into the canal, which I do not recommend. Um, but you know, some people that you have heard of as well, like Martin Luther King, Allen Ginsberg, James Brown, Timothy Leary, Frank Zappa. Do we really need to go on from there? I mean, if that's not enough for you, I don't know what is. Um, and there's and there's more than that. But before, before I get started here with Dale, uh, follow History Replays today on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Twitter, at History Replays. Um, you know, let me know what you think about this stuff. Um, if you like the episodes, you know, let me know. If you don't like them, let me know as well. Um, I got a lot, of, uh, a lot of feedback from the baseball episode. It seemed like that was, that was pretty popular, the last one. I know Shane at SLJESQ. He definitely, you know, he, he enjoyed the baseball episode. He let me know on faith, on, on Twitter. Uh, why don't you? You can also let me know if you're not doing social media at historyreplaystoday.org. That's a great place to do it as well. Um, and if this is the first time you're catching up on the Richmond History Podcast, uh, I do post on the 1st and 15th of every month. If you the first episode you've ever heard, you know, go back and listen to them all. Tell your tell your friends about it and tell your coworkers and you know when you go to the bank tell the teller 
tell the bank teller and that they should subscribe and uh, and you or and they will not miss a single episode uh, but anyways uh, I sat down with Dale Bromfield at uh, Cabell Library at VCU in a tiny little room with way too many chairs in it just like I remembered it when I was at VCU but they did actually have it was had it was really it was a pretty nice sound studio we got a really nice sound out of it um, and I also you know started out asking him I mean what is what does independent press really even mean what I discovered in my research and the book is called Richmond Independent Press because independent is actually an umbrella term that describes three different types of publications that I broke them into for just for, for sanity's sake so I could so I could better uh, differentiate between them because there are very specific things about them the underground press there's a press that we traditionally know as underground has a very short history. In Richmond, it was from 1967 to 1971, mm -hmm. and that was it. Now, everything prior to 1967, I consider dissident press. Okay. It had some of the same ideals and some of the same philosophies of the underground, but that was before the underground movement started. So to call them underground would be you know, not accurate. Okay. So I called them dissident, and the one that I have in the book is The Ghost, right. which came out in 1960. Sure. So that would be considered a dissonant publication. And some others nationwide, there was only a couple. Uh, Paul Krasner's publication, The Realist, would be considered a dissonant publication. Okay. Uh, I think The Village Voice started out, didn't start out as dissonant, but it kind of went that way in the 60s, and then it went back to mainstream. Um, so, and then everything after 1971 in Richmond, I consider alternative. Okay. Because, once again, there was no underground at the time. The Richmond Mercury, which started in 1972, would have been considered an alternative publication. Right. It had none of the philosophy or espoused none of the demagoguery of the previous underground publications. Uh, but it was definitely leftist alternative, and it was not the Times-Dispatch or the News Leader. Right. So that made it kind of separate. So And Throttle, in 1981, the one that I co-founded, would have been considered alternative as well. Right. So those three things all fall under the umbrella of independent press. And it Richmond. seems like they actually had people that, uh, the Mercury um, and Throttles had people that kind of knew how to make a newspaper. Exactly. So I think that, that seems like the biggest, the underground stuff, which especially with the ghosts, like the pictures in the book, I mean, they're ridiculous that, you know, it's just typewriter. Oh, yeah, and that um, was the technology you know, that was available at the time. Right. And Ed Peoples told me the only reason they quit publishing The Ghost, they did nine issues, the only reason they quit was because the mimeograph machine broke. Right. So, so yeah, it was very crude, but i got to tell you something about The Ghost. The uh, A lot of people don't realize it, but it, it was a very strong, in Virginia and all across the country, was an anti-war movement on military bases. Right. And those military underground papers that popped up on military bases were looked just like the ghosts. They all adopted that same format. Right. Which was a format from the 50s that carried over from the 50s with a couple of publications that were called Little Magazines uh, that popped up. They all followed that same because that was what the best technology had to offer sure. at the time. Now, yeah, you talk about the underground press. They were put together by people who really didn't know a whole lot about publishing. Right. Uh, but when you got to the Mercury, the Mercury was founded by Harvard and UVA graduates who sure. all worked for the Cavalier Daily and the Harvard Crimson. 
there were three or four editors of the Harvard Crimson came down to start the Mercury. And then with Throttle, it was all started by we who worked at the Commonwealth Times. Mm -hmm. So we had very specific, and we adopted the rules and the strict copy flow from the Commonwealth Times to Throttle. And I think Throttle had probably the most organized and the most professional production process of any publication in Richmond. Sure. Because of that. We were right. very strict on how we put that together. Right, right. And the, when the ghost was, like you were saying, like there was, uh, while it was crude, there seemed like they were actually had some pretty decent reporting. Some it did. Some stuff that was actually, you know, it wasn't oh, yeah, just they like weren't... a jerk, you know, writing a bunch of, you know, writing his memoirs and trying to sell it. Exactly, exactly. Um, and one of the things that I thought was fantastic is I, because I, like I said, do the Segway tours and... I mean, I talk to people, you know, you get on a Segway and I tell them stories, but it's, you're really just talking to somebody for two hours and you get mm -hmm. in, some people say some things that you just are like, really? Like, you know, what just happened there? And, um, one of the things that I can even remember going home and telling my wife, and this guy told me the craziest story today is in the book about Lester. Um, and I can't, I, I don't even know how to say Black, Blackiston. 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 So this guy was telling me that he was friends with him. And it was actually while we were riding down the canal. Uh -huh. And he was telling me about how he used to live on the canal. Yep. And, like, shot somebody. Yep. And, like, I don't know, and threw a cow in the canal. Threw a cow like in the canal, yeah. yeah. Like, and, like, talk about that guy a little bit. He, like, yeah, Lester Blackiston was a local poet. Uh, he was called a poet. He was more of a beatnik poet, mm -hmm. definitely, uh, which is different. A beatnik poet was certainly different than an academic poet. Uh, Lester was more the beatnik. He was more about living the lifestyle than actually creating poetry. Uh, nobody really respects him much as a poet, right. but they certainly do respect his abilities to create a persona, right. which is what he did. Now, Lester lived in a houseboat on the canal down in the locks, and um, he tried to get the city of Richmond to pump it out at one point because he thought the water was filthy, and the city wouldn't do it. They said it cost too much. So the rumor has it that Lester went out here in Powhatan County, shot a cow, <laughs> brought it back down to Richmond, and threw it in the locks and let it rot. Then the city was forced to pump it out right. because of that. Right. Now I can't, I couldn't confirm that, but I, it was a story I heard from two different places. Right, and I heard that story as well. And the guy Did told you? me the story. I mean, it was on a segue, and I was like, "That's a great story." Yeah. And inside my head, I was going, "That never happened." And then I started reading it, and I was like, "Oh crap!" Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, he had apparently uh, he had a Bible that he had hollowed out and kept a pistol right. inside of it. And I heard a couple of stories of him at parties, like opening that Bible, taking the pistol out. One person claimed somebody actually got shot. Right, that's what, that's what this person said as well. Him. Did they? I heard another one that he shot it through the ceiling. Uh, I heard a lot of those types of stories. And he would shoot a gun. He would he would flip out a switchblade, I mean, right in front of your face. Sure. Just to get a reaction. Right. And, and almost everybody I talked to said, I didn't like the guy. Right. You know, I knew him. But I sure as heck didn't like him. He said he thought he abused his wife. And he was just he was just a jerk. Right. So uh, yeah, and but Lester took Rick Davis under his wing, mm -hmm. and there was a there was a very odd paternalistic relationship between Lester and Rick Davis. You know, Rick was another beat poet. Right. Showed up in Richmond in 1958, who was murdered in a bookstore, adult uh, no, bookstore robbery, robbery in quote. I'm quoting my fingers. Um, but Lester and Rick became very good friends, despite the fact that their personalities were polar opposite. Sure. You know, Rick was, was a kind of a gentle guy, although he hung out with seedy people. Mm -hmm. Rick had friends who were ex-prisoners, uh, drug pushers, 
that, that type of thing. He did hang out with a bad element, but Rick himself was an okay guy. Lester hung out with terrible elements, but he and he was just as bad right, <laughs> as, right. as they were. Uh, so, but they had this weird paternal relationship. And Lester said one time, "Because I taught Rick everything he knows about poetry." despite the fact that Rick was already pretty much an established poet when he showed up in Richmond in 1958. I mean, he had read on the stage at Hermosa Beach with Philip Whalen and Allen Ginsberg. Right. So as an 18-year-old, he was doing okay. Sure. But sure. when he showed up in Richmond, I think Lester, well, I, I got him, I created him as a Richmond poet. Right, right. A, a Richmond beatnik poet. And I guess that in itself is, you know, the fact that there is a beat scene in Richmond. Um, a very I think strong it's one. never... Discussed, right? Um, which I've said this before in other podcasts, but it's you know it's generally if you don't shoot at Yankees, most people don't hear about you in Richmond. That's right. Um, but the idea of you know I think Richmond seem you know and you can kind of talk on this if it is a if it's important for Richmond to have it that beat scene or if it's actually you know someone coming from California to come to Richmond. I mean, what what would bring is, is the scene good enough to bring someone like that? You know, or they just lost. <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know what brought Rick to Richmond. He had some relatives in West Virginia, and apparently he grew up in Pennsylvania. So I don't know. It was just coming back to the East Coast. I really don't know what brought him to Richmond. I know he met Rick Davis, met Lester in Washington D.C. Okay. Before he moved to Richmond, maybe Lester talked him into coming to Richmond. Right. You know, said, "Hey, you know, we got a strong poetry scene going on here." You know, because well, Richmond and and Lester was. A lot of he had a lot of groupies okay, for some yeah. reason because of the force of his personality. He could he had people around him all the time, right. artists, writers, photographers. These people just hung around Lester. Mm -hmm. So maybe the force of personality of Lester is what brought Rick Davis. Sure, that's the only reason why someone would come from California to Richmond in 1958. Right, right. Uh, you know, so but the beat scene was very strong. It was strong for a long time in mm -hmm. Richmond till I'd say around 1966. Oh wow! Uh, so, like, from you're talking late '50s, '66. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. It was very small. Sure. And it was all centered around Gray Street and RPI. Right. But uh, you know, you wouldn't find any of that stuff outside of that sure. area. So it was a very small enclave, but it was very active. Right. And a, a lot of people doing a lot of great work. And it seems time. like perfect because you have the uh, um, the very conservative Richmond old money, and then, right. you know, you, you bring a bunch of kids into RPI or, you know, VCU now, and then, right. you know, it, you have to have that uh, that wall to hit against in order to make your hitting, you know, oh, exactly. worth, you know worth it, right? Yeah. And then, what happened was, uh, Teresa Pollock, you know, who founded the art school here, mm -hmm. uh, and I mentioned this, she uh, commanded a very heavy, uh, commanding presence in the New York area, and she drew a lot of artists, student artists down. Uh, from up north, and they brought that beatnik presence with them, too, because, you know, that was a New York-based movement. The hippie movement was the West Coast, but the beatnik was New York-based. So when those student artists started coming down uh, to go to art school here, they brought that with them Sure, RPI, and that, was, that made a, a strong melting pot for the beatnik movement really got it off the ground here. Right, right. Uh, and I'd say probably around 1957-58 is when it started getting going here. And so I, mean, I guess that is the, uh, I mean, that is the impetus of the ghost. It's something like that where, um, I mean, because is there a literary program? I mean, it's all visual arts at that point, right? Or, or at least, you know, at, at RPI. I mean, are they... They had a very strong poetry and fiction program in the 1940s. 
but it started falling off in the 50s. And I think it was starting to gain momentum again okay. in the late 50s. The 50s just weren't an arts period. Right. I mean, that, that decade was more about, it was post-war. It was about, you know, being becoming an engineer or an accountant or, you know, something that's going to make the world a better place. You know, this is post-war, you know, baby boomer. But, you know, this is a huge thing. So the arts really took a back seat. Sure. At that time. But in the late 50s, when the, with the beatnik presence, the visual arts started going back, you know, that curve started going back up. Uh, so, and I think that's what, that's what got it started here in Richmond then. And you did, you, you had, you had the old genteel old Richmond, the Southern aristocracy, which turned their nose up at art PI. You know, right. they, they looked at it just as a bunch of weirdos down here. You know, they didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, so that really, that just fortified. Sure. Students, you know, saying, look, we're, we're pissing off the rest of Richmond. We're doing something right, which is the whole underground thing. And that's the ghost was not so much interested in, in the angry uh, underground philosophy, you know, of resistance and revolution. The ghost was just interested in is more of civil rights oriented. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. that was getting huge in 1960 in Richmond. Sure. And so, and Edward Peoples, one of the founders, you know, he was, he's a civil rights pioneer. He said he was participating in the city-ins. Sure. Despite the fact that he's a white man. Right. Uh, you know, he went in and participated in that. So when he, he started the ghost to address the civil rights issues and what he saw were inequities in the RPI program as well, because being a recent graduate. Sure. So it wasn't so much that he was, that it was a beat publication. It just happened at the same time. Okay. As the beat movement. But it was more a civil rights publication. And how did you even find this? I mean, where did these copies come from? Well, they're in special collections. Oh, so they're, they're in your There are four copies here. Okay. Uh, and um, I forget exactly how I ran across it. Um, probably somebody told me um, about it. Okay. And then I just started researching it. And of course, nothing was available. Uh, Dr. Peoples, who's become a great friend uh, since then, still laughs at the notion that the ghost is even considered publication. Right. And can it be considered a part of the Richmond alternative press movement? Right. You know, but it is, you know, sure. because it, 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 it follows the pattern of many papers that came afterwards. It's sure. just a simple two column layout, but it, it's, it's still a publication. It still has the same types of issues uh, addressed that the later underground press. Did. Right. Right. It's just free underground in that yeah. respect. And I mean, <clears throat> I don't know who has the forethought to actually keep that. I, I mean, that's, that's pretty fantastic. <laughs> I don't know. I think Dr. Peoples caught it, kept a few and then gave them to the library. It was part right. of his papers. And, thank goodness he did. Yeah, because and I guess the, you know the within the VCU's you know history there the because um, they're at that point they're still part of William and Mary, right? right. Yeah, RPI was an, was part of William and Mary, and. So just stick the weird kids up in Richmond and exactly, you know, yeah. Oh, they got this little blue collar school up in Richmond. You know, just, you know, let them go there. It's it was called College for the Rest of Us, right? You know, and and William and Mary apparently one of the recurring issues in the Ghost is the stranglehold that William and Mary had on RPI. You know, when RPI started in 1917, they didn't get a new building until 1952. Right, wow. They, that was right. the gym on Franklin Street. Yeah. Was built. So that was the first new building they had. And Henry Hibbs was just buying up property all over Richmond. They said he probably used dubious ways to do it. But he was buying his property up, you know, just on Franklin Street, just trying to build a university with whatever he had. 
Right. Because they didn't have anything new to work with. And so the, those are all the historic homes now right. that are all down here, um, which is, you know, it's really awesome. You know, I, I was often find that, you know, people looking back at history always assume that everything is so much more altruistic and, you know, everything, you know, people are doing things for great reasons. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, all, if you drive up and down Franklin Street, you say, my God, look at these amazing homes, you know, Lewis Skinner's homes over there. Right. Um, and you think, wow, they thank you for saving these. And then you're like, well, yeah, this jerk was just trying to get some buildings. That's all he was trying to right? do. You know? yeah. <laughs> he had tore them down in a heartbeat. Right. If he could have, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, to build this. He's building a university. What's he want a bunch? I mean, they had classes meeting in furnace rooms. Uh, when I came here in 1977, uh, I had a class. I had basement classes. That bare, the pipes were just barely over my head. So, you know, they were sticking students wherever they could. Wherever they could. Sure. And Virginius Dabney mentioned uh, that he... Um, Hang on one second. We have a, I seem to have an issue with the room. Hi, did you How's have this going? one? Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh. Okay. I'm okay. Sorry. Cool. I mean, we'll uh, oh, okay. we sort this out. Should we go somewhere else? Or what happens? I, I think we. I think yeah, we're gonna have to clear out. That's cool. <laughs> All right. So I did feel pretty bad for these kids. They were very apologetic, and they. You know, they they felt like they were they were in the wrong, even though they had reserved the room, and we were somewhat squatting. Uh, but we did move to a different building, somewhat catty corner from the library. It was just a short walk across the across the little courtyard there. Um, and this man, this new room was like that building was not there when I was at VCU. And holy smokes, it looks like Star Trek with a giant you know flat screen TV at. You know, the chairs with like swivel top tables on them. You could hook your laptop up to all kinds of you know, plugs were everywhere with wide, you know, it was really nice. Um, but VCU's coming a long ways and, you know, they're, seems like they're only getting better from there. So um, let's get to part two of my conversation with Dale Bromfield. So that's awesome. So we have a little break. It makes it uh, slightly more crude. It makes me feel like I'm. Uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the tradition of underground media outlets yeah, that really. suddenly have gone from mimeographs to uh, proper publishing, and then now um, some jerk of a microphone and a laptop. Yeah, I know. So it's funny. It's the the progression. You know, it's you still do the same thing, you just do it differently. Right, right. And I think uh, I guess uh, where were we? We were just we were just finishing up talking about um, we're not finishing up but we were just talking about the the type of publication the ghost was uh, and how it reflected the civil rights movement more than the B Dick movement. Yeah, sure, sure, and yeah. it, because and that's do you think anyone blacks were admitted to VCU or RVI when Blackiston black blacks like, was when, oh, when they were admitted? Oh, it was. I never even heard of that happening. Sometime in the late fifties. It was okay. Yeah, so was the first early. black instructor was nineteen sixty-eight. Okay, Holy Grace Christ. Harris. And when she came here, she couldn't find an apartment. Nobody would rent her an apartment. Wow. And she, there's a quote that I found from her in the proscript, mm -hmm. the RPI newspaper that said, "I wouldn't have come here had I known I had so much trouble finding a freaking apartment." Right. Right. So wow. she was not happy about. It. I don't blame her. 
Yeah, yeah, no you doubt. Know, go through a big deal to bring this this black instructor into Richmond, and then she can't find a place to live. Right, no, that's insane. Went to her, so like, so yeah, nineteen sixty eight was you know not we weren't there yet. Sure, I guess something feel like I'm really far away from you. Is oh, that, uh, yeah, crazy. That's, I'm gonna, that's fine. Yeah, I'm just gonna. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. That. I'm assuming there was no commotion or anything that, um, you know, in the, you know, definitely no Little Rock situation or anything, but I mean, just... Yeah, not here. Kind of quietly. Not here it was, and it was just kind of a quiet admission of uh, black students. I, I think, I, I, I can't say for sure, I don't know, I'm not up on that part of BCU or RPI's history. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were, there were a few black students here by 1960, I think, anyway. Huh. That's pretty interesting. I mean, Maybe I'm wrong. I don't, you know, I could be wrong on that, but I don't think so. I think it's interesting just that there are were no, uh, no one ever heard of it. Yeah, I've never. I don't know. So it must not be a good story. So I, I don't know. Yeah, no. I, I, and I have no idea of the history of that. So and uh, yeah, and so the, but I guess the the next one is the the sunflower. Yeah. Right. That you talk about in there. Yeah. You think that's that's progressed into a proper paper or, or a, the underground paper at that point? The Sunflower was a full-blown underground paper. Right. Um, it occurred out, out on the West Coast in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Free Press is generally recognized as the first true underground paper. Uh, and it started in 1965, late 64, early 65. And then um, the Sunflower started in October of 1967, which was just after the Summer of Love. So uh, the Haight-Ashbury BM in San Francisco occurred in the summer of 67. So two months later, you know, we got this tidal wave, as I call it, rolling across America, and it hits Richmond in October. And that's when an RPI poet named Walter, or Art Durow, they called him, he went by the name Art, started the Sunflower. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were a lot of, 1961 to 66 was an interesting period in Richmond because there was a lot, of, you know, when the ghost ended and when the Sunflower started, because that was when the... The beatnik movement was still in swing, but there was the hippie stuff was just starting to creep in. Right. Uh, in uh, 60, late 66, I think it was early 67, uh, they opened a paraphernalia shop called Grant's Tomb mm -hmm. on Gray Street, where the Chipotle is now. Right. And that turned into a hippie paraphernalia shop. It was a coffee house, which was more beatnik than hippie. Right. So it was really a hybrid hippie beatnik place. Sure. Uh, and uh, boy, the locals didn't care for that very much. They right. said they had bricks thrown through the window and the police were always showing up and accusing them of all kinds of things. I have found a newspaper article from the Sunflower that the police came one time to on a narcotics bust. Uh, they had no reason. There was no probable cause. They just showed up right. and started ransacking the place. And the only thing they found was a 17-year-old girl hanging out there. So they got charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Oh, wow. And haul Howard and the girl downtown. Uh, of course, they couldn't make it stick. They couldn't make any of those charges stick. But they did confiscate some tea leaves just to make sure they weren't pot. Right. Uh, and they were apparently they were greatly frustrated they couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And somebody who witnessed it said the cop was shouting, Be there, damn it, be there, trying to find pot. But he yeah. couldn't find any. Right. Back then, they found a seed. You'd go to jail for a month. Yeah. And so... We know, and it's funny the, the transition as well with the, because um, I was often thinking about the, the beat generation. You're basically looking at fellas in suits, 
they you know they generally looked pretty sharp, right. um, and it's almost like a parallel of the same thing when uh, with young kids, you know they they normally look like great young kids, and then they start doing drugs and they turn into hippies, right? right. I mean that's and that's pretty. <laughs> it's, a, it's a natural progression that yeah, really make, they are. you know. Now there was some pot smoking with the beatniks, but not sure. much. Right, and that's the and, thing. You, you get in a little bit when you know when you're young, and then right. you know and the next thing you know, you're you've dropped acid and you look yeah. like a hippie. So, but it was it was the, it was the B end of San Francisco that changed attitudes toward all that. I think mm-hmm. you know Timothy Leary made his famous tune in, turn on, drop out speech sure. there, and you know he started espousing LSD. Now LSD was not very was not in Richmond in 1967. Pot was. But I think by the end of that year and into 1968, LSD was showing up. Right. And And then then heroin showed up in 69. Sure. that's when everything started changing. Yeah, it didn't help out. Oh, terrible. It went downhill fast. Yeah, never heard of a person that said my life became so much better after I tried heroin. Yeah, (laughs) no, you don't hear that. Yeah, it does not happen. Yeah. Um, But you actually, uh, you mentioned Timothy Lyric came... I don't think was that in the Sunflower when they were talking about where he came to the mosque. No, he came to the mosque in '78. Okay. Now he may have come in the '60s. I don't know. Uh, it's possible he showed up here briefly. I, I don't know, but I know he came in '78. I saw him there. And he kept getting smashed with pies. Well, somebody came out on ran out on stage and threw a pie in his face. Yeah, some some local guy. I I I, I know. I think I know who it was. Um, yeah, there was a very dubious group of people who. Uh, we're still hanging on to that violence and revolution philosophy from yeah. the late 60s. And uh, this guy in particular had, I don't know what his bone to pick with Leary was, but Leary was sitting there rambling this absurd talk about, he called it, it the acronym was SMILE. And it stood for Space Migration and Life Extension and, some, and something Life Extension. And he was going on about living in space and we'll never grow old and we'll never die. It was just all bullshit. And he was going on and on and on. And this guy runs out on stage and throws a pie in his face. And he yelled something. I don't know what. And then just kept going. And Leary, what we thought, everybody said at first, oh, it was was staged. But it wasn't because you could tell by Leary. He sat down and he was visibly shaken by it. Right. But he just started wiping stuff off his face and just continued with this rambling, boring talk. Uh, and and that was then that was the end of it, right? Which is, I guess, actively proving the point of why you don't want to do a whole bunch of acid, right? Right, I mean, right. Because he made no sense, right? <laughs> I, I, it was just like, oh god, you know. So yeah, that was walking proof, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just best stay out of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> or so, don't make your life, don't make it your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You know, like he did. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's going forward. We get like the back in the into the. Uh, um, into the uh, the sunflower, yeah. Because um, there's all Sun- kinds of stuff in here that I mean, um, I guess it, you know, definitely it definitely did a lot of civil rights. Yeah, it was stuff. big on civil well, rights because you know the hippie movement was a direct offshoot of the civil rights movement. Right. What happened was with the hippies, all the white kids saw the resistance and the fighting back that the black kids were doing. Right. And, civil, and they said, you know what, we can, we can do that too against what we consider the oppression, you know, the establishment and all this stuff. So it was just, the hippies were just adopting what the civil rights movement had started in 1956. Sure. Uh, you know, when Rosa Parks started all that, Rosa started that. And it, it just, it's a progression. And you can see, you know, here's another step, at least to another step. The Sunflower was a direct offshoot 
of the civil rights movement. And it, it, it sounded like if you replace the word hippie with black or Af back then you'd say black or Negro. Right. Just replace them. It, it's, it's all civil rights stuff. Sure. So uh, the Sunflower lasted 25 issues, mm -hmm. I think about a year. It came out bi-weekly, about a year. And it started out as really uh, the, with the Sunflower, you can imagine. It was more the flower power, the peace and love generation of mm -hmm. 1967. But 1968 changed all that. And by the end of its run, it was more about resistance and revolution. It had grown quite militant right. uh, by the end of that 25th issue. Mm -hmm. uh, they were talking more. They did a very nice photo spread. Mark Harriman did uh, shot pictures of a kind of a mini riot that occurred down on Broad Street right after Martin Luther King was killed. Right, right. And um, it, it was a very it was a very poignant uh, photo spread, and it was done very well. And that was when the Sunflower was at its best, documenting the the reactions of the civil rights movement. Sure, and uh, he was supposed to be in Richmond. He was. The day he was killed, he was, his next stop was Richmond when he left Memphis, but he decided to stay in Memphis another day. And they, had, they were all set up for him down at, um, on uh, Mount Zion Church, mm -hmm. uh, down on 6th Street, I believe. They were all ready for him. He was going to come preach there. They had the Richmond City Police were going to be in the choir. Uh, they had ushers. The Richmond City Police would be ushers. I mean, they were all set up for him to come to Richmond. And is it the 6th Mount Zion Baptist Church? 6th Mount Zion Baptist. Mount Zion. Yeah. That's fantastic. And yep. I'm actually he was going to speak there. I'm actually going to talk to the historian there. Are you? Um, I actually emailed him just before I was here trying to organize. So okay, that well, I couldn't find any. Ask him about it. I looked on their website, and they mm -hmm. don't mention that. Right. But I found it in a 1991 Richmond Voice or some. I forget where I found it. I stumbled across it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, he was supposed to come here, but he didn't. He decided to stay in Memphis to support the sanitation workers, and, and he got killed. Sure, but he had come here a couple times. A couple times. He came here in '59. In fact, he gave a speech in front of the mosque in 1959 that sounds a lot like his "I Have a Dream" speech right. four years later. There's a lot of parallels mm -hmm. in it, and the only place you're going to find that speech is on microfilm out in the Afro-American okay. newspaper. Uh, so he gave, he spoke to 2,000 people, heard right. him talk in front of the mosque. Wow. Like, that's astonishing. Yeah. Do you know what 2,000 people in front of the mosque looks like? It, it, it's a lot, a lot of people. people. And then after he gave this speech, they did a prayer vigil downtown, 17 blocks to the Capitol steps. Uh, they, what they were, what he was here for was over the Prince Edward County school closings. Sure. Uh, so he was, and he was telling them, he said, don't get angry. He says, "Don't." He said, "Embrace your opposition." It was a very unusually peaceful and gentle speech that he gave, right, in response to a very ugly situation sure. down in Prince Edward County. And that's basically where they closed the they closed all schools, schools for five years in, instead of desegregating, right? Um, right. Yeah. Instead of integrating them, they just closed them, right. And so, um, the only place you're going to find a really accurate a recall of all that information is both, you know, with Doctor Peoples. He did his dissertation on that whole thing, and he documented the school closings. The Afro-American, which is one of the papers I talk about mm -hmm. in my book, the Afro-American has some great articles about that whole situation and about King coming to Richmond in '59 and, and doing that prayer vigil. So it was very, it was very cool to find that, sure, and to read about it and see the similarities between the speech he gave here and the one he gave in D.C. Right, four years later, and. Uh 
There's a little more than 2,000 people, but it's still... Uh, yeah, there are a few yeah. more than 2,000. But, you know, to get, once again, for a civil rights leader in 1959, Richmond, to draw that kind of crowd, it's, it's astonishing. Amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's astonishing. Um, I mean, and there's all kinds of other stuff. Like, you know, James Brown got banned from the mosque? Yeah, he sure did. Uh, Marshall Rotella uh, was the, uh, the city. He was in charge of bookings for the mosque. He worked for the city. The city did the bookings. The Rotella brothers also owned Eton's Inn mm -hmm. on Grace Street, which was the quote-unquote gay beer joint mm -hmm. around town, So, uh, which was kind of unusual to have a beer joint where people, openly gay people, could congregate, but that's what Eton's was. But uh, Marshall Rotella, one of the owners of Eton, was also the booked the mosque, and uh, they had James Brown here, but they said no more. He's, okay. he's banned because... He goes down in the crowd and dances with women. Well, the unspoken sentiment was he dances with white women. Right. And we can't have that. So what if somebody gets mad? The city's on the hook. Yeah. That was his excuse. So he was banned. Um, who was the other one? James Brown was banned, and I mentioned another one. Was, uh, oh, uh, Chuck Jackie, Berry. Chuck Berry. Well, Chuck Berry was a band. He, right. Uh, he was, they, they turned down his request for a rental car after he made a reservation. Okay. When he landed, because he'd had some trouble down in uh, wherever it was. Was he in Tennessee? Was he in Memphis at the time? He got accused. He got arrested and spent the night in jail for trying to make a date with a white girl, supposedly. So he left there, and that caused some bad publicity. So he comes to Richmond. He lands at Bird Field. He goes to the rental car. Death. He made a reservation. They said, sir, we don't have a car available for you. So he had to catch a ride with a guy to his concert. Yeah. Some dude just drove him to the, to the arena. On Boulevard, so we could have his concert. That's amazing. Like, wow, welcome to Richmond. And I guess I think <laughs> they were like upset because he was late as well. Well, that was Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson. Jackie okay. Wilson was late. He had to drive himself in a snowstorm from D.C. Oh, to Richmond. Was yeah to the Sertoma Club, which I think was on North Side. And when he got there, the club was closed. He missed it. So he said, "You know what? Jackie Wilson has a reputation for not showing up for his gigs, so we're banning him too." That's <laughs> so. It's like, cool, you really? Ban them all, right? Ban them all. They're yeah, there's black performers, man. You can't perfect, You can't depend on them. Wow. So, you know, it, it's, it's awful. What do you and, this, and that was a nine-year period. Yeah. I mean, the, the Chuck Berry incident was 1959. The Jackie Wilson and James Brown incidents were 1968. So change, things changed very little. Right, and I wonder is the, I mean, is there, I mean, that's, I can't even think of anywhere else they would play at the time. I mean, they're basically banned in Richmond, right? I mean, an act of that size. Yeah, I mean, unless you go to Norfolk or D.C. Yeah, I mean, they're I, done I here. I mean, I don't know where else in the city that would have a, a just, venue that, you know, other than the mosque. Right? Uh, I mean, not at the time. The arena yeah. may have been an option. You know, the arena was for years. Um, mm -hmm. That may have been an option. I don't know. Hmm. But, yeah, it's... What? I would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the dream of seeing James Brown... Would just like in its heyday, then just be like, holy smokes! I know, that's that's ridiculous. Um, so. But yeah, so I mean, I guess you talk a little bit about it. the and the uh, the Afro. I mean, that's that's going to be that's kind of at the same time as the sunflower, right? Yeah, it was the Afro actually started publishing in 1938. Okay, and it was a company uh, based in Baltimore. Right. And there were 13 cities had an Afro-American newspaper. Mm -hmm. So in 1938, Richmond already had a black newspaper called the Richmond Planet. 
right. would have been publishing since 1883. Right. You can believe that. That's John Mitchell Jr. John Mitchell Jr. Right. Uh, and then, uh, so, the, the Afro-American bought out the planet and made it, it was originally called the Afro-American, Richmond Afro-American and Planet. Right. Uh, and so, and it, from 1938 up until 1986, it published uh, weekly. Sure. Uh, so it was a major voice in Richmond. I mean, there was a very thriving black middle class down mm -hmm. off of 5th Street in what they call area they call Navy Hill and mm -hmm. all that. It's all gone now. The interstate right. uh, took it all, uh, which is a whole other story in itself, right. how the interstate divided the city. But um, the Afro-American uh, was very much, it, was, it, it rivaled the Times-Dispatch in its coverage. I think oh, wow. it was professionally done. It looked great. It was striking, as a matter of fact. And it had society columns, it had comics, it had local news, national news, and it never adopted that angry, un, that that angry segregationist voice that the Times Dispatch and the News Leader had. Mm -hmm. You know, they had Kilpatrick and then Mackenzie later on, and a few others who were just really against, you know, who were totally against uh, integration and embraced massive resistance. And, but the Afro was never like that. It was never angry. It just very calmly pointed out the problems, the inequities, and just telling people, you know, keep your chin up, keep, keep, just keep moving forward. Right. Things are going to get better. And so that was, it was really amazing to me to see that attitude. that It, it never adopted an angry attitude. Well, that kind of goes back to, um, I guess, that tradition of, uh, well, I guess John Mitchell Jr. seemed he may have gotten a little bit more bitter at the end, but he and yeah. um, Maggie Walker, um, you know, in their heyday, are you know that very pick yourself up by your bootstraps, exactly. Um, quit crying, get out, and you know, right. prove it. You know that you can do it without other folks. Right. They did. Um, it was about self, you know, accountability and self dependent. Absolutely. And um, I guess maybe briefly, just like some people might not know who John Mitchell Jr. is. Yeah, John Mitchell Jr. Uh, started the Richmond Planet in 1883. He was really an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he built it into an empire. I mean, he really, you look at some of the stuff they did back in the 1880s and 1890s, you'd think it would be unheard of in Richmond to do what he did. Right. Uh, but yeah, he, he published, and he published the Planet for good grief, 30 years, 40 mm -hmm. years. No, no, he did... Um a trolley strike. He organized a trolley strike within the with with the mouthpiece of the newspaper, among other fantastic things. Right. Um, and you know, this is what fifty years before Rosa Parks, and the the trolley line opted to go out of business instead right. of uh, integrate. And um, he, from what I understand, refused to ever ride the trolley again. Really? Um, which I believe he was pretty wealthy at that point. And, you know, other people, yeah, people drove him around, but right. he made the point to stop saying, yeah. I'm never doing that again. I'm not real familiar with the planet. That wasn't part of the book, so I didn't mm -hmm. have to, I didn't do any research on that. Sure. I did the, the, the Afro, and really, I only focused on the Afro from 60 to 90, okay. or until it went out of business, 60 to 86. Mm -hmm. And it went out of business during Black History Month. Oh, no. Yeah, That's February of 86. So it's like, oh, could you pick a worse time right. <laughs> to, to fold, close your doors? Um, but, you know, and, and I wonder, I mean, you mentioned they weren't, didn't seem um, angry, though. I mean, is there, um, is it a, you know, looking at the something like the Sunflower and the hippies going into, um, you know, almost tag-alongs to, you know, there's a fight over here, and they come in, you know, which that tag-along help, I'm sure, was absolutely welcomed. Um, but is there a difference in the reporting from the the black side and the white side? Um, 
the, the, yeah, there was. The white side adopted what I called non-objective advocacy journalism. Okay. And that was kind of embraced by the underground press generally, nationwide. You know, they were still telling the truth, but all the new, but the stories had their own uh, language. They adopted their own language, their own sense of resistance to the stories. You know, they, police weren't called police, they were called pigs. Right. You know, so yeah, there was there was a, kind of a question as whether or not this would be considered legitimate journalism, and I guess the argument is out whether or not it could be. But um, the underground press, as far as covering the youth movement, our stories are much more accurate because the mainstream press was either ignoring the events of the youth movement or misreporting them. Right. And that's what led to the growth of the underground public. That's why it went from 11 papers in 1966 nationwide to over 400 in 1969. Mm -hmm. It's because they said, you know what, we're disgusted. And I read interviews with Alan Young and Thorne Dreyer and some of these other founders of the underground press in other cities. And Alan Young was with the Liberation News Service for years. And he left the Washington Post wow. because he saw the coverage that the Post was giving uh, a, a riot in D.C., he said, it's, that's not how it happened at all. Right. And then his editor said, well, that's what those hippies deserve. So he walked off the job, went to work at the Liberation News Service because he felt like they were giving better coverage. And the, the Liberation News Service was also the only news outlet to have reporters in the Columbia Revolt right. in 1968. So they was a much more accurate uh, you know, look at the youth movement, but their choice of journalistic standards many would say would be suspect because of that advocacy. You know, they've got a point to prove and their news stories are going to push that point that right. they believe in. Whereas the Afro was more about standard journalistic practices okay. that were accepted by the mainstream press, but, um, th but it's just their choice of stories. Once again, they ch pick and chose their stories. Uh, and you really get no hints of anti-white or anti-anything. In the, in the Afro-American. They were just interested in pointing out, doing what they had to do to move their point forward without using the advocacy or the non-objective that the undergrounds yeah. embraced. And would you, I mean, they, but they're not considered mainstream, though, within that I would consider them not necessarily, they were, they were the black community, but they weren't read very readily by whites, so they still fall under the independent yeah. label. And is, I mean, is there any comparable distribution? I mean, I'm sure the Times-Dispatch is obviously... Yeah, they're know, obviously more, way, um, way light years ahead of everyone else. I don't know what the distribution numbers for the Afro were. Okay. I, I know they distribute over 250,000 papers across 13 cities. All right. I know that. That's a pretty good bit. That's a, that's a big number. But here in Richmond, I don't know specific circulation numbers. Okay. And that, the, the voice comes out of that, right? The Richmond Voice, the Richmond Free Press... Uh, came out of it. Um, yes, yeah, so yes, it has a those legacy. Are still around. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, there's a legacy there. And, and one of the things I pointed out was the, the papers that we have now, like the Richmond Free Press. And Ray Boone, of course, was worked for, he was an editor with the Afro American before he left and then created the Free Press a few years later. Um, they're all legacies of the Afro American and still carrying the same, doing the same types of reporting that were done by the Afro, that were started by the Afro. Yeah. So, yeah, the voice of the Virginia Defender. Right. I think is, uh, you know, they are more about support for the impoverished and the helpless and the, those who don't have any real voice for themselves. You know, that's what the Defender is all about. And I think they uh, 
following that mo- in that model sure. that the Afro uh, started. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. And then, um, I mean, I guess you can move into the, the Chronicle. Richmond Chronicle. Right? Now, now, there was a true militant publication. Right, they seemed a lot more like trying to get into trouble. They, yeah, they picked up where the Sunflower ended. And the Sunflower was just starting to get to embrace the militancy uh, that the Chronicle picked up and ran with right away. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened with the Chronicle, a couple of guys came here. One guy in particular, Bruce Smith, came here from Richmond. He had been down in Lynchburg. He was a Lynchburg student. and he, he was the Virginia president of a group called the SSOC, which was the Southern Students Organizing Committee. Yeah. Uh, their whole thing was about, they were embracing the civil rights movement and, and it was an advocacy to bring middle class whites more aware of the challenges of what the blacks and the working class whites were facing and not be scared or put off or to not you know, be angry about what was going on, but really to educate middle class whites about what was happening with the youth movement and the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So they had really honorable uh, ideals when it started. And so Bruce came to, he went to Lynchburg and Charlottesville and he came to Richmond, started a local branch of the SSOC. Well, that's when the FBI started, got involved and started looking at what is this SSOC and what are they doing? And they immediately compared them to the SDS, mm-hmm. the Students for Democratic Society, which was a very vi- became a very violent and, embra- and you know, preached revolution. Uh, the SSOC was not so much like that. Um, but then, you know, Free University started here in Richmond in 1969 also, which was a national movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it was down here at Laurel and Broad Streets. You pay $2 and you take night classes. So it wasn't really free. It was called right. free because it was, it was part of the free learning and the, this, this whole thing of, um, I don't know exactly what the free stood for, but right. it wasn't More like free. liberated. Yeah, liberated kind of like that. It was, you know, classes money. you won't find in your, you know, your die cut uh, standard college courses. So, and, and they had a class called emotional hangups. Yeah. You know, I don't know, you know, and it's funny, I contacted the, the instructor of that class. I said, mm-hmm. can you tell me? He's still around. I said, can you tell me what you taught in the class emotional hangups? He said, I taught a class called emotional hangups. <laughs> I said, yeah, I've got a picture of you actually sitting in the classroom teaching it. He goes, I'll be damned. That's awesome. <laughs> he couldn't remember teach. He couldn't tell me anything about it. Yeah. So uh, I found a picture in the news leader uh, of him sitting there teaching this class. Apparently got no his emotional hands. Apparently so. Because he, yeah. But um, the Richmond Chronicle, what happened was VCU gave $2,400 to Free University. The student government approved twenty four hundred dollars to start free university, so it was kind of an offshoot of VCU mm-hmm. in a way. And some people got started. They, it was over here in the Empire Building mm-hmm. at Laurel Broad, and they had a performing arts center that they put in there. They showed movies, they had concerts, they had uh, Springsteen played for the right. free university, uh, and they had these night classes there. Because Springsteen was living here at that time. Yeah, he was right? living here. He's with the band Steel Mill. Yeah. Uh, whether he's living here or, or he played here a lot, I know okay. that. So wherever he was living. Um, but they took um, 1400 of that 2400 went to start the Richmond Chronicle, which really, I think, was perceived as the official newspaper of Free University, mm-hmm. but really it, it was kind of independent. Uh, now, some of the money they made selling the Chronicle went toward Free University. I think five cents of the 25 cent price went toward Free University, um, but that was really about their only real 
uh, connection to it. Right. And what years we're talking? This about? was 1969, October, okay. uh, August of 69 mm-hmm. is when the actually the f- very first issue of the Chronicle apparently came out in late June. Uh, we can't find any copies of that though. Okay. And the only evidence that I could find that there was one that issue two mentioned. That issue one came out two months ago. Nice. So that's all we had. But I did find issue two. And uh, it came out in August of 69. Then it was every two weeks after that. Okay. Uh, for almost a year. Mm-hmm. It came out. But what a history they put together in a year. Yeah. They really, they embraced more the, uh, not the hippie movement, but the youth movement. And the more uh, militant aspects of the youth movement uh, on a national level. Not just Richmond. The Sunflower was almost entirely confined to Richmond coverage. Mm-hmm. It was just about what was happening in Richmond. Because not, not, you know, nationwide, it was still picking up steam. Mm-hmm. But by the time the Chronicle came along, 1968 was over, and everything changed. And now, now it was about revolution. You know, yeah. we got to tear everything down and start all over again. Sure. And the anti-war movement was in full swing. Uh, the civil rights movement, you know, the Black Panthers were going by that time. Right. Which, by the way, they were much different than what you think of now with the Black Panther. They were actually a fairly uh, more community-minded and, ch- and charitable. Right. I remember, you, it actually, you talk about that in there, that Bobby Hill comes and talks at Monroe Park. Yeah, Bobby Lee. Or Bobby uh, Lee. Bobby Lee came. I said Bobby Hill. That's yeah. totally from King of the <laughs> that's Hill. That's King Sorry. of the Hill, yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, Bobby Lee came and Preacher Man... I don't know his real name, but he goes by Preacher Man. Uh, he was with the uh, uh, a student movement. They came and did a talk. They only had 50 people showed up, and they were almost all cops and reporters. That's great. So hardly anybody came. So Richmond was not ready Yeah. in 1969 to embrace the leader of the Black Panther Party. You know, they just, mm-hmm. not me, you know. I'm just, right. So, um, but the Chronicle really, they really embraced that non-objective journalism style, too. And they did address issues that the Times Dispatch News Leader wouldn't go near. They, uh, my friend Katya, who was the first editor, uh, wrote a big story on homosexuality in one of the early issues, uh, which is the first article about homosexuality that I've seen anywhere in Richmond. Right. At that time. So, well, that's very, nationally, that's pretty early. It is. 69 is real early because they didn't start a gay student alliance in VCU until 71. Okay. So, um, so that was you know before any of that. But they had, they had a lot of anti-war, very anti-war publication, uh, and uh, just just really embracing all mm-hmm. of the new left and youth movements going on at the time, and causing quite a storm. There was one article in particular I mentioned in the book about how uh, a woman living in Fulton Bottom uh, had rats. She was a welfare mom. She was living there, and a rat had actually made its way into her baby's crib, and, and she found this giant rat in her kid's crib. And it's because of the story in the Chronicle that the judge said, get her out of that house and get her some good living arrangements. So there was a positive result to some of the Chronicle reporting. Uh, people were, you know, paid attention right. to it. And I think it's because of it, it was really in your face. Huh. But people were paying attention at yeah. that point. Uh, so I, I don't know what Richmond's reaction, uh, Katya told me, she was the, America's first female underground newspaper editor was at the Richmond Chronicle, uh, August of '69. First one anywhere. That's and she didn't even know it. Until yeah. I told her last year. She goes, "I was first. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, so and she went by the name Nina Saberoff back then. So it made it hard to track down because her first and her last name had changed. Right. But uh, but I found her in Florida, 
and uh, she was wonderful. Uh, she gave me her journal that she kept. She was only in Richmond for six months. She says it's part of her life that she just forgotten about. She just put it aside and yeah. I went there, I edited the paper, and we left. You yeah. know, that was it, but I brought all this back. Right. And uh, she was very grateful for mm-hmm. me, for, for contacting her and, and reliving this part of her life. But uh, they were 100% committed. She goes, I didn't go to a movie. I didn't eat out in a restaurant. It was just the Chronicle. That's great. That was it. They were solely devoted to the Chronicle. And I think it was a source of frustration for her that others did not share. That There were a handful mm-hmm. of people who shared that you know, right. passion. Sure, but uh, but you know she had it more more than most. Mm-hmm. So and it was really fascinating too about the, because the Chronicle. There's some question with some of the early members of it as whether or not they considered themselves a collective organization. Okay. Now there was some there was a real downside to a collective. There's only a couple of papers across the country who consider themselves collectively run. Uh, the Great Speckled Bird in Atlanta would be one, for example. Um, by collective, I mean that every staff member had the same say. Right. That no one person had say over another. Now that set up some real problems with the organization because they say a staff meeting can last all day. Right. Arguing about whether or not a paragraph should get cut out of a story. Right. Because everybody has to agree on it. Yeah. To do it. So that was, that didn't work. Now one of the early founders of the Chronicle told me that, yeah, we were a collective paper, but another one said, no, no, we weren't either. Uh, so they had a specific, they were following a hierarchy, sure. uh, so that they had to. Yeah. But if you look in the issue of the Chronicle, the staff box, there's no staff box. It just says the people. <laughs> so they wanted to be a collective, but they didn't want to go through all the trouble right. that was associated with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, At a certain point, somebody has to say, this is what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, we've got to do this and not do this. Yeah. Somebody's got to. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see how, it seems to me you just get... Crushed in your own inertia, right? Right. right. <laughs> if, you did, if you didn't, if someone didn't speak up and sure. take the lead, you know. And so I guess in the uh, there's also the phase one, which I thought that the coolest thing about this, you were talking about Allen Ginsberg apparently accidentally caused a riot. Yeah, he inadvertently uh, caused a riot. It really, he came. He spoke at the new gym over here on Franklin Street. Uh-huh. He did a poetry reading over there, and. Um, they, Which uh, is not the new gym now. It was the yeah, new gym then. It was called the new gym. I still right. call it the new gym. Yeah, there saying. is a new gym now. Yeah, there is. They're but pretty nice. So the Franklin we're talking Street about the Franklin Street yeah. gym. He gave a talk there, and somebody handed him a flyer at the end of the talk, and he holds it up, and he says, Oh, there's a block party in the 1100 block of West uh, Grove Avenue. Everyone's invited. Well, you can imagine. Everybody thought, Ginsburg's coming. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't show up for the party. But they go up, everybody goes up there, a thousand students go to Grove, the 1100 block of Grove Avenue. And, um, you know, a keg gets tapped, the band starts playing, and everybody's, you know, there's pot, there's joints being handed around, it just turns into a big street party. Mm-hmm. Well, a Richmond City policeman, a canine unit, drives up. What does he do? He opens his door and lets the dog out without a leash. The dog goes straight for a student, bites him in the crotch. <laughs> Okay, that starts a riot. More police come. It, things things got completely out of hand. Uh, one one guy who was there told me that he had an eight by ten room in his apartment. He says there's thirty people had stormed into that room hiding. Uh, it, it just it was just chaos. Yeah. Uh, and on the street down there. Well, Ginsburg. Now this I can't confirm because I've heard uh, five different variations of the story. Ginsburg, apparently, they got him to come down and say, would you help get these people down to Monroe Park? 
And if they quietly, willingly go to Monroe Park, they just will let go all the people we've arrested. Okay, so a whole bunch of people go down to Monroe Park. Whether Ginsburg led the crowd or not, I don't know. But when they got there, they found out that either the police lied to them or were nigging on their agreement, or that agreement was never made in the first place. It was just a rumor. Sure. So they all go back to Grove Avenue saying, you know, chanting, you know, free the people, free the people, free... Well, they made 17 arrests. Uh, a bunch of heads got busted open with night sticks and flashlights, which was a police favorite, a Richmond favorite. Um, and then uh, then finally, by the next day, it, it was all calmed down. But it, it was it was quite chaotic, yeah. from what I understand. Huh. So, And there were actually two riots on Grove Avenue that year. Uh, phase one, the, the Ginsburg one was more... Uh, more well known, mm-hmm. but there was another riot previous to that that formed what they called the Grove Avenue Republic, right? Which was a subculture of Grove Avenue residents who had these big designs to start a communal type collective living arrangement where they could have a grocery store and you know basically a self-contained uh, thing. They had a banner made. There's yeah, a, there's a famous Richmond Chronicle cover, you know, with the banner up on front of the house, the Grove Avenue Republic. It was so. It was. It was. That was typical. You know, of, that was a real hippie movement yeah. type of type of thing. Um, so yeah, Grove, the eleven hundred block of Grove was quite uh, known for the party atmosphere. You might sure. Say. Right. And I don't think it's changed. I mean, I don't I think it has a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm retired. I think they're all more I'm retired, retired from those days. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm retired from those days, so um, I wouldn't know where a good party was. So, yeah, you know. But, but phase one, that was an example. If you read the Times-Dispatch version of the Grove Avenue riot, it's vastly different than the one you get from Phase 1 because the Phase 1 writer was right in the middle of it. Right. Dale Milford wrote it. And um, it's a wonderful account mm-hmm. uh, of the riot. And it's almost a blow-by-blow account with Dale's own advocacy type of you know commenting as it goes along, uh, which was surprisingly... Um, he, he was really angry at both sides. Right both the police and the hippies for creating that. Somebody threw a cinder block off a building and aimed a cop in the head. It's knocked him yeah. unconscious. You know, bad move. Bad move. And so, you know, he said, what a moron. Yeah. You know, so he was very honest in his, in his coverage. But it was, it was not objective at the same right. time. But still, it was better than what the Times Dispatch had just kind of glossed over. Right. And then not long after that is when you come into the picture of the Chronicle, right? Uh, the Chronicle... Uh, I mean, at the... I mean, at the, uh, the the, uh, the, well, the Cumwell Times the Cum- first. Cumwell Times, right. Yeah, Cumwell yeah. Times, I, I started Cumwell Times in 78. So okay. yeah, it was about eight years after. Now, the Merchant Mercury filled that hole. But the Mercury was not a vehicle for the new left or the youth movement. Right. They were a bunch of Harvard and UVA eggheads, you know, in their topsiders and their, bla- their blazers, who came to town, really created the best journalistic publication ever published in mm-hmm. Richmond. The journalism was second to none. In there, these guys were good. They were dedicated, and it was a weekly. I don't know how they came up with the stories that they did on a weekly basis, but they did, uh, and it published for exactly a thousand days. It was oh, wow. three years, and they came. They had a business model. They they had paid employees, so it was not an underground publication by any stretch. Like I said, it was alternative. It came post seventy two. It was definitely an alternative publication, um, but in they were a victim of their own success. Unfortunately, because they 
you start when you start pissing off your advertisers in right. a city the size of Richmond, there's no endless bank of advertisers on deck waiting to take their place. Sure. You lose neighborhood theaters because you gave their movies bad reviews. You've lost the entire theater industry. They're not advertisers anymore in Richmond right. in 1973. You know, you know, you, you make a restaurant mad because you publish a health violation. Well, you've lost that restaurant forever, and there's no restaurant comparable to step in and take their ad space. So that just you just see the revenues just start. It's a it, the downward curve started sure with, because of their journalism. Right, and I guess that goes with uh, what I was thinking about when I was reading. It was is the how the institution that they're fighting against. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even when you get into the throttle, like you were saying, you know, the, there is, you know, I guess it was um, Brown, Brown Distribution. Yeah. They, they sponsored and had that full-page color ad on the back. Yep. Um, where it almost runs into something that's, you know, pretty common now with a lot of these trying to get, you know, viral YouTube videos or whatever as your commercial mm-hmm. um, to have a subversive advertising model. Right. Right. And, it, and having these folks that are coming from you know, that subversive area. Right. And then saying, well, oh yeah, we'll, we'll adopt you so you can, right. you know, financially, so you can continue your subversive, you know, whatever thing Well, you're doing. Brown Distributing knew a good thing. And they saw, I mean, Throttle, when Throttle started in 1981, we never started it thinking it was going to be, go on. We did it as a one shot. Mm-hmm. Because we had a history. Uh, me and Peter Blake and Bill Pinellas and a couple of other guys, Rob Conrad, Jack Moore, Ronnie Sampson, we all had always done one-shot publications, mostly little, you know, eight and a half by 11 zines mm-hmm. was what they were. And then when in, in December of 80, we said, well, let's do another one, but let's do one right. Let's do one that we think we can do really well. So let's do a tabloid this time and spend the $200 of Peter's money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and uh, you know, really do something and get contributions. It was all about getting contributions from the community, whereas the Mercury had been closed. Yeah, it, it was everybody who was a freelancer in Richmond got rejected by the Mercury. They just they like to keep things in house. Whereas with Throttle, we we begged, send us what you got. Right. You know, so so we solicited from the community, got a bunch of stuff, and published this one edition in January of '81 with no thought that we were going to do another one. Well, two months later, because that one had disappeared virtually in 24 hours, it got picked up, and Peter said. Let's do another one the next month. He said, y'all want to do another one? Because I think, I think it, it was a good thing. So, okay, we did another one. We solicited contributions from our friends, and we published. And it, boom, again, gone in right. 24 hours. So we started doing another one. And by the fourth one, Mike Fuller stepped in and said, I want to be your business manager, and you guys are really on to something here, and we need to do this right. And Mike put us on the track of solvency by proposing advertising and ad sizes and putting out rate cards and, and doing all this stuff that we never thought to do. We just wanted to publish the magazine. Right. You know, we were the creative side of it. Mike was a business head. So, and he came in and said, and you know, we sold ads in that fourth issue of Throttle. And by the sixth issue, two issues later, it was fully self-supporting on nice. advertising. That's excellent. It's astonishing how fast it happened. We went from a stupid little one shot at the beginning of the 1981, paid out of our own pocket, to having an issue completely 
with Frank Zappa on the cover. No right, less. I was going to say, you're not only picking like from your friends and neighbors, but... Right, we're getting stuff from, you know, we had a drawing, but we, we had an interview with John Waters in that yeah. issue. So, the film director, so, it's like, all of a sudden, what happened over this course of six issues? So, it was bi-monthly at that time. So, then, after that sixth one, we were now self-supporting, we switched to monthly. Sure, but then how did you get that Frank Zappa? I just asked him. Yeah. Well, I re- and he played at the mosque in 1972, and he did a song called "Why Do They Fry Everything in Richmond?" Yeah, when it was here was kind of an improv piece, which I have never been able to find recorded. Right. So I don't know if it was recorded or not. Um, but when I wrote to him, I said, you know, I'd really like to have some artwork for you from a magazine because you know we live in Richmond, a city where they fry everything. And I think that so he said, ah. So he wrote me back and he said, you know what? He goes, your request is pretty ridiculous. Even from a city where they fry everything, he says, but I'll help you out and I'll do a drawing for you. And he did. He did a self-portrait. Yeah. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah, and that's in, that's in the book, too. Yeah, so that's, yeah. A, that's a really it's cool... Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Really and cool I've still got the original and the original letter, wow. too. So uh, that's a real collector's item yeah. that I have. But yeah, he just said, yeah, I'll do it for you. And that happened with almost everybody. We started getting stuff from all over the country by that second year. By the middle of that second year, we were getting drawing Kaz from New Jersey. Right. The underground comic who now does Spongebob. Sure. He was sending stuff to me. Just yeah. unsolicited sending it. That's great. Peter Baggy, publisher of Weirdo, starts sending stuff. Awesome. Um, and of course, the famous Matt Groening mm-hmm. story. Uh, sent, you know, he was publishing Life in Hell in several publications mm-hmm. around America at the time. So he sends some to us. And I get these Life in Hell comics and I'm looking at them going, you know what, I just don't... I just don't like these. Right. I think they're kind of amateurish. So I put them in the envelope, mail them back to him. I said, sorry, Matt. You know, thanks for sending your stuff, but we're not interested. Yeah. And, and now The Simpsons. I turned, yeah. Now he, now, now I'm the guy who turned down The Simpsons creator. Yeah. So, wow, way to go, Dale. Right. Uh, so <laughs> you win some and you lose some. You win some and yeah, you lose some. I know. But we had, you know, Tony Auth, who won a Pulitzer Prize mm-hmm. for his editorial cartoons, did an editorial cartoon for us. Uh, we were just starting getting stuff. Anybody we had, Bob Strong, the photographer. He was also the photographer of the Mercury, now at the Toronto Bureau Chief. You but know, also some really lawyers. amazing music interviews and stuff. I mean, Bad Brains, um, you know. Ramones, R.E.M., yeah. Grace Jones. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. In fact, I'm doing a piece for the RBA Music Tumblr page on Throttle's contribution to the music scene, which I'm going to work on after this, as a matter of fact. Uh, the music, it became a music magazine. Yeah. Inadvertently, kind of, because the Richmond punk movement was just starting in 81, and by 82, 83, 84, it was roaring. And it was, it was a national movement. It wasn't some, you know, Richmond, this insular little Richmond movement. Everybody said, Richmond has got a really awesome music movement, and Throttle happened right at the beginning of that. Sure. And we were able to capitalize on that, and we created, we intentionally created ad sizes for bands. We call them band-aids, and um, they were created for five and ten bucks. Right. A band could get an ad in Throttle and be seen by thirty thousand people. Yeah. Versus you know a couple of hundred who'd see their flyer on a telephone pole. Sure. So that was something that we did, and we would have two and three pages of these ads every single month. That's great. Uh, because everybody could afford. Yeah. To buy one of these little ads. So, and then our, we, we had uh, a strong staff. We had a music editor mm-hmm. with music. So we were very, hierarchy was very important. And nothing collective about Throttle. Hierarchy was very, we had an editor for everything. Right. Uh, I was production manager. I had an art director and a comics 
editor and an ad design director. Sure. And it seems like somewhere along the way you guys all kind of uh, got burnt out and just said, you know what, I can't. Well, you know what happened? After about five years of a monthly volunteer publication, like I said in the book, no one had ever done this for five years before. We didn't know what happened now. And we were just, we'd had it at that point because it was just constant money problems. As fast as the underground movement arced up, it arced down. And Throttle was the same way. Right. As fa- we went from 3,000 to 20,000 monthly issues in 18 months. Mm-hmm. We dropped down to 8,000 monthly issues almost. It's just as fast, if not faster. Wow. Uh, what happened is when you build your whole... What, the one thing that really hurt Throttle was them changing the beer drinking age from 18 uh-huh. to 21 because mm-hmm. we lost a lot of clubs. Yeah. Uh, we lost the lady lost a lot of of our music advertising and club advertising fell off because of that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't sell beer. Well, yeah. I couldn't sell beer anymore. And uh, so that was that was really what contributed to throttle and to me going. I, I just can't keep doing this. Right. You know, I, I production managed fifty five issues. But then you got out and it continued on, right? It did continue. Yeah. Actually, it continued a long time and it set a record for an unfinanced monthly publication financed by. Uh, Staffed by volunteers, lasted almost 19 years. Wow, which is unheard of. Yeah, because I mean, I remember it when I was yeah. when I was coming up. Yeah, yeah it so. was still, yeah, yeah, it was still around then. So it lasted until 99, 1999. Mm-hmm. So you know that that's just astonishing. That was sure. able to, to keep going. But we left, and a guy named Ned Scott Jr. took over, and he redes- he had it redesigned. Doug Doby became the art director, and they redid redid the whole magazine, and they had Brown distributing back, and it looked really good. Uh, Ned lasted about a year. Okay. So yeah. he left. He said, "I can't keep doing yeah. this." So he left, and a woman named Dorothy Gardner took over, and she lasted less than a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, she got purged uh-huh. uh, out. And then Ann Henderson and Mary Blanchard took over, mm-hmm. and they kept it going. But it really, it was, it was. We went from monthly to bi-monthly to quarterly to twice a year, sometimes down to once a year. Right. So it really dropped off uh, its frequency, uh, but it still, it still hung in there, and it was all, it was all about money. Yeah, it people all had to have jobs, right? I mean, yes, yeah, so people have jobs. You can't, you know, when you have to depend on your volunteers, those volunteers get tired of volunteering. Right, it's somewhat of a hobby, more yeah, than a, a job. Exactly. So. so, but there for a while, in the early 80s, when we were starting out, though, people considered it an honor to be in the pages. Sure. And, man, I could, I could assign space for something and not have to worry if it was going to show up or not, because I knew it was going to show up. Yeah. Because people were that anxious to be included, and we had so much stuff rolling in. We actually started the second publication, Hardball. Okay. Just, just to publish the stuff yeah. we got that we couldn't use in mm-hmm. Throttle. So that's how, and that's really a credit to Peter uh, for saying, you know, we, we need to do more for the community. Yeah. We we're saying, Peter, you come on, you know, we've got a monthly magazine that's killing us now. He goes, but I think we can do more. So we kind of divvied up the staff and put together Hardball and published that then. That's Sold right. ads for it. It was self-supporting. So yeah. what the heck? Yeah, that's... Huh. So and that then that led me... I got out of Throttle in late 1986. Okay. And then I got married in January of 87. So, and when I got out of it, I never looked back. Right. I, I, I was lucky if I had picked one up. Right. Uh, wow. And that's how, that's how over just, it. Just burned. I, I was completely just over it. And I look, and I wish I'd gotten out three or four months before I actually did, because I go back and look at the last three or four issues that I was editor of. It's like, ugh, my my bad attitude is all over it. Yeah. <laughs> and I really wish I hadn't hadn't done that. So, sure. you know, but you know, it's like, another issue I've got to do. Yeah. You know? And um, well, I guess I'm gonna say 
we can get out of this before we talk, tell every story in the book. Because people, people <laughs> yeah, no, we still do want, want to read the book. We do want people to read the buy and read the book. Absolutely. Um, but I really appreciate you talking to me about it. Sure. And, uh, Happy to do it. Um, I I enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully other folks will as well. Uh, I hope so too. Thanks for having so, me. Yeah, absolutely. That was it. That was my conversation with Dale Bromfield. I really enjoyed it. Hopefully you did. I also really enjoyed reading the book. So, you know, go out and check the book out as well. It's, it's a great read. Um, yeah, thank you, History Press, for um, helping us out with this, uh, this conversation and uh, got the connections sorted out for them, uh, with them. And, uh, you know, follow them. They do great work publishing a lot of these, uh, you know, local books. Uh, and uh, if you have any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear about or uh, guests that you know of that would be that would be interesting let me know and really just make it a great day